0: All right, we are uh, continuing our our series on Relationship Resto. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments. Um, We have gone way longer on these than I had planned. Um, We haven't gotten through more than one in a day. Um, Today, we're going to get through the rest of them. And believe it or not, the next four chapters in the book of Matthew. (laughs) So. So buckle up! Um, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a, a, a wild ride. Um, no, we we are. I'm, I've been I've been so challenged in this series. I trust you have about how um, just how I've been reminded just how practical all of Scripture is. How, how we, it's all transformational, and, and so we're going to continue in, in our, our, our series here looking at, at the Ten Commandments, how they, following them, God, you know, God really knows how we are supposed to function. He knows what a good life looks like for us, and, and um, that's, what the, that's what the Ten Commandments, that's what His guidance, that's what His rules are all about, and we've seen that over the, the past number of weeks. And so we're just going to jump back into to where we're at in the, the, the list of the, the commandments. Um, and this week, we're going to start out in Exodus chapter 14, uh, or chapter 20, verse 14. It says, uh, very short verse, you must not commit adultery. You're familiar with this verse. You must not commit adultery. Um If you remember back the last couple of weeks, the last number of of commands we've looked at, um, the command itself we've seen is a pretty straightforward thing. We think we got a handle on it. We think we've checked that box. But then Jesus comes, and um, in, in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the Ten Commandments, and he expands them, and he expounds on them, and he exposes what God's heart is for that command and we see that same thing happen here. So in Matthew chapter 20 uh, chapter 5 verse 27 Jesus is talking about this command and and he kind of shows it to us in a new way. He says, "You have heard the commandment says that you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart." So Jesus takes this, what is purely uh, an, an action, adultery, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action, and he, he, he expands it, he widens it to even our heart motivation that drives that behavior. The concept here is, is the core kind of evil desire he's talking about is, is lust. And lust is, is basically just a craving or desire to have something for yourself for your own pleasure, regardless of circumstance, so it doesn't take into account whether you should or not. All right, this is this is why um, this is why pornography is so destructive in our lives, because we are we are taking something that doesn't belong to us. We're using something that God created in in one way, and we are trying to derive pleasure for ourselves outside of the structure in which he's created. Now this, is, this, this command is not just a, a exclusive to, to sexual sin. A lot of times we put it in this, this little box, but, but it even goes beyond that. A desire, this can apply to a desire for someone else's affection or someone else's attention Or a dependence that should only be coming from your spouse. The marriage covenant was designed to be an exclusive relationship. A holy relationship. One that is, you know, holy, the the definition of holy is set apart. It's something that is different than the rest of you. Your, Your marriage shouldn't look like your relationships with your friends. Your marriage shouldn't, sh- the goal of your marriage should not just be, you know, your, a, a really good friend that you live with. The Bible talks about... Um, this principle of when we get married that we we leave and we cleave right you've heard that maybe in some some ceremonies that we we leave our families and we 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 create something new we create a new family is born when the two become one and this this coming together has a consequence and it's forsaking all others. Now that doesn't mean you don't have other significant relationships, that doesn't mean you don't cease to have family outside of that that relationship, but this new relationship becomes the primary, the circle, your, your number one relationship, the most important earthly relationship that you have. It becomes the priority over all others, all day, every day, all the time. Your marriage should be the number one place where you receive, where one, you can go with your secrets and two, you can get support. Secrets and support. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have close friends but those friends those relationships should always be supporting the marriage sometimes we have relationships and and they're in competition now that can be just you know if if um if you're just a relationship that has gotten too close, that it's competing for the affections and the attention and the, 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 the desires in a relationship in the marriage. There's somebody outside that that's not that's not um, it's, it's getting too close to this priority. It can also just be a relationship um, or that, that's just dis- distracting from the marriage. It can just be, you know, For guys, you know, it could just be a buddy that you just, you would rather, you spend way too much time golfing with than quality time with your spouse. If you're married, or this can even apply, maybe on not quite the same level, but if you're dating, how well are you serving your spouse in these areas? How well are you supporting the other person emotionally, physically, with the, the needs that, that just arise in life, with, with supporting their dreams and their aspirations? How well are, are, are you at at keeping their confidence, keeping their secrets? That doesn't just mean, you know, not telling other people, although it certainly that's like the first step of keeping a secret is like not blabbing it, right? <laughs> but in order to keep it, you gotta you have to you have to we have to receive it, right? We have to, we have to talk to each other. We have to, we have to seek that information. We have to find out what the other person's really got going on deep, deep down where they ha- they're not comfortable sharing that with anyone else. And sometimes that only comes when you, when you ask for the information. When you create an environment, a time, an evening, a, a space where a real conversation can be had. If you're you're married and you have kids, especially young kids, this is, this can be a Herculean challenge, right? Because as long as, as long as they're awake, there's, you, they just, kids have this, um, I don't know what it is. There's something in them, they have this innate ability to, they can leave you alone for, you know, an hour, but the second you need your full attention in a conversation. The second it it feels like to me sometimes, as soon as it turns into something serious that you really need to talk to each other, or as, as soon as you need to, to be doing something else, that's when all of a sudden they need your attention. They come in. They're you know, <laughs> it happens. But we can't let that we can't let that just become the norm. We have to always make sure that we're making room for those quality connections. The focus here is on faithfulness. It's the, the, see, every command, even the ones that, where God says, don't do this, the reason he's saying don't do this is because it flies in the face of some characteristic of God that we are to reflect. And uh, adultery is, is the, the, the pinnacle of lack of faithfulness. And God wants us to reflect who He is. If we want quality relationships, we have to, we have to, we have to be, learn how to be more like Jesus. That's how we have better relationships. And being faithful is, his, is who he is. he is. We sing songs about it. He is faithful. God designed it that way. And he created us to thrive in relationships when, there's, when faithfulness is at their core. And he's dead serious about us living them out. Let's, let's read the rest of the passage and, and we'll see just how serious from, from Jesus. In verse 29, he says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. I, always, I thought that was funny that even your good eye as if, like, there's a major difference in your eyes. Like, well, this one, man, you know, I could, I could do without. But now you want my good eye. I mean, is there really that big a difference? He says, throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, we could, we could spend the rest of the day just breaking down the, the kind of cultural implications of, of that passage. And we're not, we're not going to do that. But yikes. Yikes what do we do with this? Are we, how, how serious, these are one of those verses that we have to ask ourselves, like, how serious am I supposed to take this? Right? Are, are we to take this literally? Should, should there be a bunch of blind, limbless Christians with a big scarlet A on their chest running around? Like, is that, is that what Jesus is promoting here? Well, um, I want to put a pin on that for now. <laughs> Uh, but I'll leave you hanging just for a moment. Uh, we're going to continue in our main text, but there's a reason. There's a theme that runs through the rest of these th- these commands, and that's why I've kind of lumped them all together. Because um, the answer, the, the the purpose of these, while they each have their own individual thing that they're highlighting. All of them, the solution, the thing that, that Jesus, the thing that God wants us to get out of them is all the same. It's all driving at one direction. And so we're going to circle back to this at the end. Um, but I, So I promise I won't leave you hanging, but we're going we're gonna to keep, keep moving um, with, with, with ex- in Exodus. So Exodus, uh, first we had don't commit adultery. Now we're, we're moving on. We're going to be at uh, verse 15 says, you must not steal. Again, seems obvious for now, but I'm sure you've caught on that uh, there's more, there's always more to the story uh, with Hebrew. There's always, you know, Hebrew is so different different than, than English. English, it's just kind of, just feels like it's very straightforward. You know, here's the word, this is what it means. But in Hebrew, it's not like that, like... Here's the word, and here's the story that it means, and here's the picture that it creates. And it's, and it's actually the way they construct their, it's fascinating. The way they, the, their grammar is constructed, the letters have different meanings. So words that, that are close together in their appearance and their spelling are related in more than just that. Um, it's amazing, just the, the intricacies of it. So that's part of the reason why we always have to dig we dig into Hebrew to figure out what it exactly is that, that it's, it's saying. Um, so what, what's this saying to us here? You must not steal. Well, um, one application is the straightforward one, yes. Do not take other people's property. When you go to the store, leave with the things that you paid for and nothing else, right? Right? <laughs> Don't take things that don't belong to you. This is is our understanding of stealing, and and that applies here, but it's actually not the primary focus of of the the Hebrew word they used here for steal. Um, What it's mostly talking about is focused on the intangible things that we can take from each other through manipulation, through deception, or through intimidation. It's talking mostly about stealing, taking somebody's dignity, taking somebody's freedom, taking somebody else's self-respect. It's also talking about cheating, taking advantage of somebody else. Do you remember, though, the Ten Commandments are all about relationship, and so... What this is, this isn't just saying don't take from somebody else. It's saying that that we have a responsibility to make sure that we act in good faith and in good and in the best interest of the other person. It's talking about actually doing a day's work in your workday. It's talking about doing what's best for your client or what's, what's fair with your neighbor whether they understand or would know the difference or not. It's about representing yourself honestly on your taxes even if you don't agree with what they're saying you have to pay. You know, it's interesting, in, in Matthew, um, the corresponding text, the, the, the part, we're not going to read the whole thing, but the part where Jesus expands this particular command, if you read it isolated from kind of a discussion like this, you probably wouldn't even recognize it because the whole part of the, the, the sermon that, on the mount that's talking or dealing with this is there's a part in there, he's just talking about oaths. He's saying, and he says, you know, don't, don't make an oath by heaven or by earth or even by your own name. He says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because he's not just talking about taking candy bars or stealing stealing from a bank. He's talking about living with integrity. He's talking, he's saying that in our relationships, if they're going to flourish, if they're going to thrive, we have to know that we each other have the other's benefit at heart. That I can trust you in our dealings together. This is similar to to the the next commandment where he talks about you must not bear false witness. Don't lie on nobody. Now this one is more focused. On actually, on, it's kind of the formal version of what we were just talking about. He's talking about causing libel or character assassination, especially in some formal setting like a, a court or a, a workplace, even. Are there areas in your life that you cut corners? You say or do things that come at the expense of someone else's reputation. You throw your coworker or your brother or sister under the bus. This is, as God would, would, would say in the Old Testament, this is stealing. We've stolen from them, we've stolen their reputation. This can also happen when we, um, this happens a lot and we feel justified in doing it. When, when we do a, a, a certain thing, we tend to, I forget the name of the principle, but there's a principle where we only apply this to other people. We don't do this with ourselves. But we tend to, we, we, we have this gravity towards applying motivation to other people's behavior, specifically negative motivation. Now we don't tend to do this to ourselves. When we fall short, we focus on the the reasons why we fell short, right? I said something I said something mean that so and so. I lost my temper. I focus on well, they did this and they did that, and I had a bad day, and it was the fourth time we talked about it. When somebody else loses their temper with us, or or treats us poorly, or does something that we, we, we have offense to. We have a tendency to, to create a story, a narrative that goes to the value of the person. See, they're not having a bad day. They're, they're a bad person. They didn't have a moment of weakness. They're selfish. They didn't just make a bad decision. They they they're a liar they're a cheater we don't just we don't just acknowledge that they did the thing they become the thing and when we do these things we when we add these motivations when we act improperly when we when we stop when we don't have integrity we we step and we talked about this last week we step out of the umbrella of god's protection we step out of the umbrella of, of relationship with him. And then we come to fi- the final command, number 10. you didn't think we were going to get through them all today, but we did. <laughs> number 10. And this one, you know, part of me says, well, you know, he, he probably could, the Lord probably could have just, like, we could have had, like, Five commands. Like he could have done, how do you deal with God, and then just skipped right to this one, and it covers all the rest. Exodus twenty seventeen says, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. God is basically telling us you know, and covet's such a weird word. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, we we're not sure how to, how to exactly to define it. I, I, think it's, I think the easiest way to look at it is like this. God is basically telling us no keeping up with the Joneses. No offense, Joneses. Um, you know, there was, I was reading this article uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was a study about the effects of a neighborhood when somebody in the neighborhood wins the lottery. They've been doing, they've done some research. A big study came out a couple years ago. And it, it was fascinating. They found that for every thousand dollars that a person who won the lottery, so if they won a thousand dollars... The people, the, their neighbors, the people directly around them, I forget the exact parameter they, they, they set for this study, but their neighbors, for every $1,000 that they won, their chances of going bankrupt in their own personal life went up by 2.4%. For every $1,000. So if they won $20,000, their chance of going Bankrupt was like 25% higher than someone than if if their neighbor hadn't won the lottery. I thought, man, what what a what a perfect picture of our predilection for coveting. It was the only variable that changed. There was something new in the neighborhood. Somebody else had new resources and you know started buying new cars and fixing up their house and going on vacations. And we get, we get sucked into that. We, 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 we crave that, that equality. You know, of all the commands, Jesus spends the most time expounding on this one. For almost two chapters, his focus is is on the things that we do to look better in the eyes of others. For two chapters, his expansion of this this command is two chapters long. It's the part where he's talking about giving to the needy and not letting, letting, you know, do it in secret, not letting uh, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He talks about... um, Fasting and doing it privately and, and, and not letting others, others in on that. He talks about um, worry. How worry and our, our, our care and concern for our clothes and, and all these things, it's, most of our worry is, is being driven out of this covetous heart. We're worried because we desire more than we have and need. That gap creates stress. See, especially here in America, this is what I need, but this is what I desire. This is what this is what I think I need. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. (laughs) And so all this life we live in here, all this margin in here, is what creates stress in our life. It's what creates worry. And most of it, not saying that there's not legitimate needs in our life, but a lot of what we worry about is things that we don't really need. We're just trying to keep up with the Joneses or the, the whoever. <laughs> and this, this can be true in your, in your, in your statuses. In your, um, you know, your possessions. It can be true relationally. You know, your best friend gets married. Now, all of a sudden, being single is the worst thing in the world. And then they get pregnant. And all of a sudden, oh, my goodness. I'm, where's my family? It could be a, You know, everything's going great. And then your, your, your buddy gets a promotion. And now, all of a sudden, this job that you genuinely liked 10 minutes ago. Now all of a sudden you're you well. Should I? I should quit. This is a dead end job. And I. The focus here is contentment. See, God says, "Don't covet," because that's not my care. My character is one of peace and contentment. And so he he tells us to to avoid this this thought process, this attitude, this spirit of, of coveting, because it will wreck our contentment. It will wreck our peace. When we do these things, it damages our relationships, our ability to trust each other and enjoy the life that Jesus is providing for us. So what is Jesus saying to us about this? He's, he's made it clear that we we have we have made these trades in our life, you know, as we've gone through these commandments and, and really looked at what he is the standard he is he is saying we need to live up to. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say I I am not. I can't. Is he just explaining why our our lives are are lacking? is he just trying to make make us feel bad? Is he trying to to guilt us into to trying harder? I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I think if we look at the the next several chapters in Matthew, we the, the story, the message becomes more clear. See, sometimes we um we miss some of the messages in Scripture because we, we take too myopic a view. We just look at this verse or these four verses, and, and that's all good, and, and d- doing deep dives on small, small verses is, is super valuable, but the, writer of, the writers of, of Scripture, um, Hebrew writing styles uh, are, are very different than ours, and, and if we step back and look at bigger sections of the story, The headlines of those sections tell a story in itself. So Jesus spends the Sermon on the Mount, command after command, advice after advice, expanding these rules and these standards and and showing us just how just how deep the rabbit hole goes, right? Just, Just how far off we really are. So what what does he do next? For the next three chapters, Jesus goes, so he has the sermon on the mount, and then for the next three chapters, he goes on a healing spree. I mean, he he starts traveling around, and it's just one story after another. I mean, some of them, it's not even a whole story. It's just a highlight where he's just like, he went into this town, and everybody got saved. I mean, he was like, Oprah on her, my favorite things episode, you know? You get healed, you get healed. Everybody's getting healed, you know? I mean, it was... Story after story. Why? What's the correlation? Well, I thought we were talking about sin. Yes. But you have to understand, in in Jewish custom, in Jewish thinking right there, the people he's trying to communicate to, sin and sickness were irrevocably linked. It was understood in their culture that if you were sick... It was most likely they, they didn't have a Western view where it's all, you know, biology and mechanics and chemicals and this, that, and the other. There was an assumption, a presumption that if you were ill, somebody messed up. Either you or your parents. And so, what Jesus is saying, because throughout the Gospels, there's this kind of word indeed balance, where he he teaches and then he demonstrates, then he demonstrates, then he teaches. And here we see the demonstration of of his reaction. He's going to teach on it after he gets done. His reaction to us not being able to stand up to the standard that he set out in his sermon. So he gives us all this, all these, these rules, he shows us the, the law, the way we are to live, the ethics of the kingdom that he's bringing, and it reveals to us that we can't live up to it. And then he goes on a healing spree. To their perspective, he goes and he starts forgiving people for their sins, left and right. Over and over, he forgives countless people, people who brought their, brought their problems on themselves. People who, who were born with, with problems, with sickness. People who were suffering from something somebody else did. And Jesus is indiscriminately healing these all these people. And then in chapter eleven, Jesus stops and he gives a a, a short message. And then he prays, and it's in this passage that, that I think he, he reveals what he's trying to say through, through this healing spree. He stops and he has a message to the, see, he, he was going around, he was, he was pronouncing the kingdom and he was doing all these healings and there were, there were places that received him well and, and accepted him and, and were, were touting him and there was people starting to follow him from these towns, but there were other towns where they just outright rejected him. They just, as a community said, we don't, we don't, want, we don't want none of that. And his message is to the towns that rejected him. Even though he visited, even though a few people got healed, and his message to them is actually, it's, it's a lament. It's a, if you're reading New King James, it's, I'm sure there's a woe in there. You know, not W-O-W-W-O-E, woe to you. He's saying, he says, it will be worse for them in the, in the, in the coming day, in the coming kingdom, it will be worse for them than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he prays a prayer, an interesting prayer. And it's in the prayer, he actually kind of gives us some insight as to what was the difference What was the difference between the cities that received healing and and received Jesus and the cities that didn't, that rejected him? The difference between those um, that received him and those that rejected him, it wasn't the size or the frequency of their sin or their sickness, it had nothing to do with. It had nothing to do with how many sick people were there. It had nothing to do with how sinful there were, it had nothing to do with how often they sinned or how many were sick or how bad they were sick. It all had to do with their willingness to lay down their pride and come to Him, their willingness to submit to who He was. See, the point of the Ten Commandments, the message on the Sermon on the Mount is bigger than just showing us what we need to do in, uh, to be in a right relationship with God and with others. The point is to point out that you can't. In the, in the prayer that Jesus, Jesus prays, he, he, he talks about how, how the, the people that rejected him, he refers to them as clever. See, they're, they're, they're smart, they're independent, they'll figure it out on their own. You and me can't live up to it, you, that we are in constant need of a Savior. Consistently we need saving. I don't know about you. But most days I've 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 blown it before I get in the car to go to work. The reason Jesus says, and we're gonna told you I wouldn't I wouldn't uh leave you hanging too long so the reason jesus says if 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 your eye makes you sin cut it out is to highlight that even your most extreme attempts to overcome your sin nature is pointless because the action there it's hyperbole right because it wasn't it's not actually going to solve the problem if you have a a lust problem in your heart poking out your eyes isn't going to change that you're still going to be dealing with lust If you have a, a, a thieving heart, cutting off, your hand isn't gonna, it, cutting off your hand isn't gonna stop you. You'll figure out a way. You know, life finds a way. Our sin finds a way to, to manifest itself, regardless of our physical restraint, regardless of our, our just our sheer will. You know, this week I, I wrestled a bit with this message because I, I feared it was it was getting redundant. I feel cuz we you know it's kind of the that the we get to the end of these messages and I feel, and it's always kind of the same thing you know repent rinse repeat But you know what the the Lord wants us to know today that that, that he was just kind of like I had this moment and I just kind of heard in my head just well, yeah See there is a, each of us has a destiny that God has for us. Each of us have, has a, a, a full life. He says he, want, he came to bring life and life abundantly. That he wants our relationships to be an, constantly growing and maturing. But there is, uh, our sin creates a lid for those things. It creates a, a lid in our relationships. It creates a, a lid, in our, our worship is hindered. Our, our witness, our ability to share the hope that lies within with others is, 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 is tamped down. Our, our ability to, to connect, and even our desire to connect and our ability to connect with God and, and to pray and to see, see our prayers make a difference. The, the, the sin in our life creates a lid. Because it gets in the way. And it's not just a one-for-one one kind of thing. You know, I, I I do this in my head sometimes. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you feel that disconnection from God or from somebody else, and you try to you try to pinpoint that one thing that you did, right? Like, what's that one thing I did that 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 that's causing me problems right now? And you you think through, you know, your day or your week, or whatever, and you try and, oh, that must have been it, John. I'm sorry. Um, but it's bigger than that (laughs) because it's not just one thing it's all the things and this is why God does not call us to repent but to have a lifestyle of repentance this process but this process isn't meant to be a, a a shame-filled thing. See, we, 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 we tend to, to kind of avoid repentance or, or confession, to make that a real part of our life. And no, no one raise your hand, but how many of us actually have built into the rhythm of our day, not month, not week, not year, the rhythm of our day, a time where of confession before the Lord. The point of this is to drive us to the arms of Jesus. After the Sermon on the Mount, where, where we see how lacking we are, after Jesus' healing spree, where He shows us His power over sin, after he, he laments and warns those who reject His power, Jesus shows us the way out. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, super familiar. Jesus said then, this is right after the prayer. So he's done all this stuff, and then we kind of come, come to this moment. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and general of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think life, a uh, uh, think of a life of repentance as as a lot like like getting in shape. Um, I have I am not in shape right now, um, but I used to be, and then before that I wasn't, and then I was, and then I wasn't. So I have I have gotten in shape probably three times in my life. I mean, up until I was like 25, I was just in shape, right? I mean, we many of us, especially if you played sports, I was just like, it was the only life I knew, and it wasn't until, I, you know, you don't know what it's like, it's funny, you don't know you're in shape until you get out of shape, and then you try to do something that you used to do when you were in shape, and you realize that that you're you're going to hurt yourself <laughs> but getting in shape i think it's a, it's a lot like it's a lot like building a life of repentance at first it, it's awkward you can you can barely do anything for very long everything hurts you dread going to the gym or the fitness center or wherever you're going to go to work out. And my focus is on how out of shape I am. The times, um, the times in life I used to be in shape, right? When, I, when you first start getting, trying to get back in shape, that's kind of the, 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 the space you're in. It, it's hard. Um, you don't like it. And I, I think moving towards a life of repentance, we experience some of those similar things. It's shameful We're, at some degree, even though it's just us and God, we're we're embarrassed, it's discouraging, it's awkward, we don't really have the words, we don't really know what to do. We don't look forward to it. It doesn't feel like something that's gonna be life-giving. When I do it, it, it tends to just, I just remember days when I was better than I was today. But when we stick with it, when I stick with my my, my exercise, uh, the pain gets less. Things I used, I was doing two weeks ago. Now, now I can do those, and I don't want to. You know, I don't want to die. Um, now it just hurts a little. Uh, choosing, uh, it, it, choosing to go gets easier. It, it, the more we do it, it, it becomes now it just becomes okay. Kind of a, a resignation. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm going to put in, put in my time. And I, I start to notice some changes on the inside. Maybe, maybe not huge things and maybe not anything anybody else can notice. But I start to notice things on my inside. As we, as we pursue a life of repentance, we'll, you'll start to notice a change. Maybe not in your behavior at first, but in your thoughts, in your emotions. You'll, when, you, when you go to do that, that thing again, you'll, you'll start to not, it won't feel so good in the moment when, when you're doing it. All of a sudden, lashing out in anger or, or withholding or whatever that thing is, all of a sudden while you're doing it or maybe right after all of a sudden, you start feeling a sense of, of regret that wasn't there before. And eventually, if I stick with it long enough, if I devote myself to it, it becomes a part of my life. And something switches. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And he talks about how how in, in any major project or any major thing, you get there's a tipping point. There's a point at which everything kind of shifts momentum. And I think that that's that's, that's true when you're working out. I think it's true in this as we pro, uh, work towards this this lifestyle of repentance. That um, at some point, I start instead of feeling the pain to do it, I start feeling the pain when I don't. At some point you get in shape to the point where if you skip the gym a few days you start to notice. You start you start feeling a little a little weaker. You start noticing your energy level dipping. At some point when we when we pursue this life of repentance, we get to a point where we st- we will The pain isn't when we are repenting or when we are coming before the Lord and letting him clean us out and forgive us. We start really feeling the pain when we don't do it because we've been, Jesus has been able to layer after layer, strip us down, strip out all that crap so that we are clean vessels. And so then when something's in there that doesn't belong, we, we notice it. It bothers us. And that's the way it's supposed to work. We notice eventually if we do this long enough that we can do things we weren't able to do before. Because your spirit's clean, you can, you can love, you can be honest, you can show mercy, you can connect with others in a way that you never thought you could. Your appetites change. You know, when, when, when you're in shape, when you actually get in shape, um, I know, at least for me, junk food, like, I I started to not like junk food because I started associating the feeling that I got when I ate it to the food itself. See, when you eat, like right now, when when you don't eat well, when you eat bad food, your body, you know, our bodies are amazing. They will adjust to just about anything for as long as it can. (laughs) I mean, eventually it'll kill you, but... um, So there's there if you're eating a bunch of of junk food and then you make a shift, it's hard at first. But once your body reacclimates to healthy food, to good things, and to and if you if you don't have that junk food for a long time, when you go to eat it, your body tells you that was not acceptable food. Don't do that again. We're able to, our appetites change. We, we stop desiring the things that will cause us to feel sick because we now know what it feels like to, feel, to be healthy, to feel good. And those, finally, those changes on the inside begin to show on the outside. Eventually we get to a point where it's not just a motivation, it's not just in our hearts, it's not just it's not just, oh, I've been you know, I I feel bad after the thing. It's my behavior has actually started to change. I've actually stopped cheating people. I actually am now much more kind and generous to other people. I'm now fate we start. We start displaying the characteristics of God that He wants us to when we and that come out when we avoid those those sins, those commands. We start showing ourselves and we start looking more more uh, we have more integrity, we have, we have, we're more faithful. Our worship is 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 so much more enjoyable. It's easy to get in God's presence and, and it's enjoyable while we're there. We can be quick to encourage because we're not coveting or comparing to others. We can receive criticism because we know how to handle it. We don't don't have all of these insecurities and and self-doubts and and defense mechanisms. It's all been stripped down. So When we're in a healthy spot, you can criticize me all you want, and I can evaluate it honestly because... When we live a lifestyle of repentance, we're, we're used to this. Like this is this is just another thing to handle. Okay, is it true or not? To God, what do you think of this? Okay, cool. Moving on. This series is about restoring relationships, seeing them change for the better. And ninety percent of our relationships—if you want them to change—ninety percent of the stuff that's going to happen for our relationships to change, it's when you change. It's when you change. Now, uh, uh, that's—we tend to think of it the other way around, right? <laughs> like, this relationship needs to change. What needs to change? Well. Here's a list, and the first nine out of the first ten things on it is usually like the other person's things, right? We can't control other people. You're not responsible for other people. You're responsible to um, be Jesus to them, but you are not. You are not. You are not in charge of other people. All right. You are their support. You are their friend. You are their family member. You are not their Holy Spirit. And they're not yours. So my challenge today as we we close is simply this. Would you, would you, for the next next 10 days, commit to make a plan, well make a plan, and then for the next 10 days (laughs) execute it, on living a life of repentance. What does that mean? Well, simply, it it means carving out a time in your day, an appointment with God every day that you are going to spend in confession, in repentance, and in evaluation. You're going to examine your last 24 hours since your last appointment with him And think through your day. I would I would even suggest reading through the Ten Commandments every every day. And and think on each one for for a moment or two and ask the Holy Spirit to show you moments, show you where you came up short in that in that in that moment. And go through and then ask for the for the Lord's forgiveness. Ask him to pour into you the love that you need to cover that. Ask for the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. Confess those things. And I, I it, it may, I, I promise, it may sound right now like this, this is gonna be about as, as fun as a Mack truck hitting me with a load of bricks on it, right? But I promise, if this becomes a part of your life, that moment is, is never gonna be, is not always like gonna be super yay, um, but the rest of your life can become that. Because you, the rest of your day, every day, every day, you're starting with a clean slate every day. You're 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 discovering things about yourself, and eventually, eventually, the, the, the shame of 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 our our shortcomings will go away. Eventually, your your hesitancy to go to God will go away. Your times, your other times in prayer, worship will become more um, more enrapturing. Your ability to to connect with with your your friends and your family and to to really listen to them will start to increase. You'll start to see the changes that that the word talks about. the, 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 The Romans 12, the transformation by the renewing of our mind, all of that, all of that comes into play when we live a life of repentance. So I, I, I encourage you to, to join me in this journey. The next 10 days um, and, and then forever, but for at least the next 10 days is a, a trial run, a money-back guarantee. I will, you know, if, if you do it for 10 days and, and if, if, if you really are dissatisfied, uh, email me and whatever you put in the offering this week, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. How's that? Um, But join me in in, in this this journey. Um, for some of you, this is may probably is already a part of your regular part of your, your spiritual rhythms. For for some of you, you you maybe maybe you may have never on your own sat down in in a time of confession. And this will be new for you. That's exciting. I would encourage you, all of you, to find a buddy, find somebody that you can share this journey with. A friend, a, a spouse. I encourage you today, even after after we dismiss, just you know, text them and say, "Hey, would you? I, I want to share with you. I want to share this journey with you. Can we? Can we talk every couple days and explain what's going on? Maybe somebody that that's here that's doing it too, or it could just be a, a, a trusted friend. And I promise you, we will all." In 10 days' time, be, be cleaner vessels, more connected to each other and more connected to the Lord um, than we are right now. And, and that's, that's, I hope that's why you came this morning. I hope that's, that's why, you, why you're a member of, uh, of Christian Assembly. If you are, why, why you're listening. If you're, if you're online or you just happen to catch this, that's, that's what our life is about. It's about being transformed. It's about being closer to each other and growing closer to God. So if you would just um, I just gonna um, I'm just gonna pray a, a prayer of blessing over us this morning, um, and uh, then and then we're gonna go home and eat some food, probably. So Father, we we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you that that your word is good. It's good to us and it's good for us. Jesus, I ask that you would you would speak to us this, this next 10 days as we're, we're committing to, to confession, as we're committing to spend time um, being vulnerable for you and honest before you. God, would you, would you show us our stuff? Would you show it to us so that you can forgive it? so that you can clean it out, so that we can, we can have a cleaner relationship with you and with, with each other, better and, and, and more open, more honest, more, more authentic, more life-giving than, than we've ever experienced before. God, I pray that this would be a, a turning point in some of our lives, that, that 10 days from now, 20 days from now, a month from now, we would look back and go, man, that was really the start of something significant. My whole world is, is different because, because I, can, I can connect to God and I, I, I am truly free of the bondage of sin because I've, I, I've, I've created a life rhythm that, that allows me to get rid of it and not hold on to it. I thank you that you are so generous, God, that, that, that you've created a system that, that we, we just have to give it away. God, we just have to give it to you. You, you, don't, you don't make us pay for our sins. You paid for it, God. Thank you. We pray all these things in your mighty name. And we bless your church. Amen. 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 You guys have a good week. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to register for the Legacy Dinner.